Hi, my name is Frances Pollock. I'm Allison Chu. And you are listening to another episode of Miss Opera Music Mister, a podcast exploration of trends and biases in contemporary opera and how they reflect the world at large. This podcast was developed out of a research project about gender bias in contemporary opera reviews, and we realized that the issues were much more interconnected and sprawling than we could explore in just one academic research paper. So we turned to our friends, colleagues, mentors, and role models to help us out. Hi, Allison. Hey, Francis. Um, <clears throat> welcome to another episode of Miss Opera Music Mister. Well, it's the first episode. So it, it can't just be another is. episode. It is the very, very first episode. And this was in such a long time in the making because yep. we started this project back in March. March, March of 2020 when yeah. everything went berserk. Yeah. Like days before everything shut down because of the pandemic, right? You had just gone on spring break. Yeah. Wow. That's, that and feels we like a lifetime supposed ago. supposed to get a coffee. Yeah. Instead, we got many Zoom coffees. Lots of Zoom coffees, and then porch coffees, socially distanced coffees, mm-hmm. yep. yep, all summer long. Yep. And yep. now that we can finally sit down and record everything. Mm-hmm. Because Connecticut is doing well with its COVID numbers. Now we can record yep. this podcast for you. Yeah. So uh, this is our first episode of Miss Opera Music Mister, um, which is a uh, exploration of a bunch of the research that Allison and I have been doing about opera reviews and the gender bias that might or might not be present within yeah. the opera reviews. So we're going to spend all of these episodes exploring topics that range from opera, classical music, Gender bias, uh, critical reception, history, canon formation, librettists, yeah, producers. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be a hefty podcast. <laughs> it will be <laughs> to say the least. Yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna have a lot of things to talk about every week. I think. But in this first episode, we thought that we would just uh, let you get to know Allison and I a little bit, um, our relationship to the field, and. Um, you know, let us talk about our experiences with this thing that we will be discussing for the next um, several weeks. Yeah, ease you into it. You know, we don't need to, like, dive right into the deep end. Exactly. I think that might be a little bit scary. <laughs> so, yeah. Francis mm-hmm. is a DMA composer at the Yale School of Music. She is a composer of operas, primarily. Mm-hmm. Um, lots of song cycles recently, mm-hmm. I think. Uh, and, <laughs> Thank you, COVID. <laughs> and she is composed for places such as... Um, oh gosh, uh, Washington National, mm-hmm. Chautauqua, mm-hmm. um, where else? Seattle? Seattle, uh, Chicago Lyric. Yes. Prototype. Um, the Belcantanti. You might know her for her operas such as Stinny. Mm-hmm. Um, oh gosh, I can't remember the name of your children's one. Uh, Earth to Kinsey. Yes. Earth to Kinsey. Um, I did Briscola this past, um, spring. And I'm currently working on Salt, which will be another uh, grand opera exploration, whatever that means. (laughs) And another project on uh, the Midnight Whale Collective. So if you're interested in that, go to our YouTube channel and check that out. Yeah. We first met um, at the Opera Studies Working Group. No, actually, it was the... Um, Why Opera Studies Today conference Mm -hmm. um, at Yale University, uh, Mm-hmm. You were an accepted student. I was an accepted student. Didn't know anyone. Sat next to Francis at dinner. 
uh-huh. um, at an Indian restaurant in New Haven called Sitar. Uh-huh. And it was wonderful. Yeah. I yeah, I remember that well. It was that was such a bizarre conference because like David Little was up here, Royce Vavrick was up here, and like all of these incredible minds and thinkers, you know, sort of congregated spontaneously, it felt like. And we were sort of in the thick of it. I was presenting on like one part of the um you know, the conference and, yeah, you know, you were sort of helping organize it, right? Oh, no, I was just a... You were observing? <laughs> I was just observing. I flew in from Michigan and was, like, you know, still riding the wave of graduation and all that kind of stuff. Amazing. And threw in a quick visit to my family, came up for New Haven to see Yale and see the conference and then meet everyone, and then I flew back to Michigan. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. It was a great, it was a great conference. Well, let me introduce you. Sounds good. So, um, Allison is a PhD student um, at <laughs> at the Yale Department of Music, where she studies such topics um, as opera, uh, contemporary opera, and uh, the presentation of identity on stage, and the intersection of uh, opera race and society. Yeah. Um, her, uh, you know, big recent project has been um, writing about Gershwin's, uh, you know, short opera called Blue Monday, which is becoming more and more in, uh, <laughs> like, a, a contemporary topic, right? I, I don't think it ever stopped being a contemporary topic from the point of its composition till mm-hmm. now, and with the recent um, Porgy and Bess at the Met last year, mm-hmm. um, I think everyone, it's on everyone's mind. Yeah. I, I don't think we're going to stop talking about Gershwin, Race, Porgy and Bess, and Blue Monday anytime soon. No. No. And I guess the place of American opera. And, like, I think this is becoming more and more um, salient to me is uh, that the idea, like, all of the things that you are studying are things that I am also navigating in an artistic way. Mm-hmm. So opera is this thing, right? Opera in, I guess, the most benign, like, wonderful, you know, idealistic, utopic um, sense is, like, opera is, like, storytelling through music that utilizes the full capacity of the human voice. I think that's the most succinct definition anyone has ever given for opera, by the way. (laughs) So, because I can't do that. Yeah. (laughs) Kudos to you. Thank you. That's the definition that I've come to. But, you know, um... That is, like, that's my most idealistic version of opera, but there's also, like, this definition of opera, which is this, like, elitist art form that's very much tied to, like, America's connection to Europe, particularly, like, as we consider this, like, current sociopolitical moment. It's it's a term that has a ton of baggage. Ton of baggage, yeah. Right? I mean, the historical weight of the term opera, I Mm -hmm. think... Every time that word is said, it's invoking this, like, you know, you have the stereotype of the the heavyset opera singers, you know, belting her voice out on stage. Mm-hmm. That's always the, the stereotype that maybe, like, popular conception of opera has. Mm-hmm. And then you also have the red carpets of the Met, you know, and the, yeah. the multi-million dollar budgets. Mm-hmm. And um, the people who dress up in ball gowns to go to the night of the opera, right? right. Yeah. Um, yeah, the um, $500 seats and oh, yeah. the, you know, the subscriptions and the opera box. I mean, like, it's very much tied up, like, the conception of opera is very much tied up with um, class mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and elitism, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, it is also generally performed in another language. It's sometimes performed in, like, yep. a musical idiom that is, um, you know, pretty distant from, like, a popular or, like, 
dare I say, vernacular idiom. <laughs> oh, the dreaded yeah. B word. Yeah. Um, like, sometimes it is pretty far from what, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's inaccessible, like, in sort of the most, you know, rudimentary definition of that yeah. word. Yeah, and I think also, you know, people conceive of it as being super dramatic, too, right? Like, the, the like, high vocal ranges uh, and, and the serious training that you have to do to become an mm-hmm. opera singer. This is, like, understanding of the opera diva as being super dramatic, mm-hmm. you know, and always, ha- like, this overflowing with emotion mm-hmm. um, that I think opera is this, like, mysterious and mystifying thing mm-hmm. that we all work with. Yeah, I, I totally agree. <clears throat> and, like, the ch- I think the truth of the matter is, is, like, I didn't come to opera for any of that. No. You know, I <clears throat> I think I saw in opera the potential for something that was extraordinary mm-hmm. and something that if, like, I could continue to play with it would be, <clears throat> for me, the most, like, profound and impactful theatrical experience, like, I would ever experience. Because I think that's... I think that, honestly, I think that opera fails, like, 98% of the time. Mm-hmm. But the 2% of the time that it works, it... It, it's like nothing else. So why did you get into opera, Francis? <laughs> like, how, what's your background? What's your mm-hmm. musical background? And how did you end up as an opera composer? I think oh, our listeners God. are really interested. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, this is like a story that I've, uh, you know, I've had to like really unpack for myself um, during my time at a place like Yale, mm-hmm. where like all of a sudden like you're putting yourself up against a history and like a history that in particularly like a place like Yale is, you know, intimately involved in. Mm -hmm. So I am an opera composer by accident, I think is, (laughs) is like the best definition. Like I grew up in North Carolina into a family who just absolutely hates opera. Like my dad doesn't like opera. That's interesting. (laughs) It's super interesting, right? Like my dad's a, um, my dad's a jazz pianist and loves musical theater, loves musical theater. Mm -hmm. I grew up like, and my dad knows more about musical theater than anyone else I know. Like, wow. Yeah. Like, I feel like I could put him in a room with some of the, um, the Shin musical theater scholars and he would be able to have like an incredible conversation with them. That's awesome. Yeah. And so, um, love musical theater, hated opera. And I was like, I want to go and write musicals when mm-hmm. I was going when I was um, applying to college. And um, of course, liberal arts education has uh, and like you know sort of the elite the elitism that trickles down from um, whatever in academia. Like uh, liberal arts education does not recognize musical theater as this like legitimate art form, or at least my teachers didn't. Mm-hmm. And so I started writing what I called opera, <laughs> but it was like, you, it was, it was musical theater. And so yeah. like, it was, it like invoked like the same lyricism and, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> you know, character as like musical theater, but like it also used the like heightened, um, the heightened voices. Mm-hmm. And, but it was also still totally full of, like, Southern music, you know? And so, like, my dad's, like, Southern, like, jazz vernacular, all the church music that I grew up with, like, all of these sounds of the South, like, I was, you know, I I sang a lot of gospel music growing up, um, and, like, th- that was just part of my life. And so, like, all of that came in with my, like, opera idiom. Mm-hmm. 
And it wasn't until I wrote my first opera, it, like, blew up in a myriad of different ways. <laughs> and then I came to Yale, and I realized that, oh, that's actually, like, those quirky parts of me, like, the Southern idioms, like, even me being a female composer in a lot of ways, like, all of that is in tension with what opera stands mm -hmm. for. And so, like, that's been a really interesting journey for, for me. Um, but I, so that's how I came to opera. I mm -hmm. came to opera not knowing anything about the baggage that yeah. came with it, but loving the idea of, like, its potential. Well, it's so interesting that you bring up musical theater, because, um, I would say, so I'm from New Jersey. I'm from Homedale, New Jersey, which is about an hour south of New York City by mm -hmm. car. Um, so in eighth grade, you know, we could take a class. I forget, I think it was called Creative Arts or something like that, mm -hmm. which, like, you're smiling and laughing at the title. <laughs> it was a quarter-long class. Amazing. <laughs> so the field trip for that class was to go see Phantom of the Opera on Broadway, though. Uh -huh. And that was the only time that I ever talked about musicals or, or anything close to a staged uh, musical or opera-type piece in, mm -hmm. you know, in high school or before yeah. that. That was eighth grade. Uh -huh. um, then I went to uh, University of Michigan, where I studied clarinet performance and English, and mm -hmm. on all of our musical, in our all of our um, music history classes, we talked about operas. We didn't talk about musical. I know. We never talked about musical theater uh -huh. at all. Maybe in the slightest bit in our like, you know, the section on like American music. But even then, I don't have a lot. You sort of, of stopped with of like vial, right? Like you know. Oh my gosh! I don't even think we even got to vial. <laughs> You know? That's so sad to me. <laughs> oh, it's so sad. And now I have, like, so much reading to do. But, yeah. you know, I, I don't have a big recollection of actually studying it in my music classes. Mm -hmm. You know, what I do know of it was, you know, as a kid growing up in New Jersey and a family who had the means to go to Broadway and would attend Broadway shows from time to time. My mom loves Broadway. Yeah. But she also did not have an opera background. Uh-huh. So I think I only came to opera and started loving it as I started playing the music. So I had this like crazy opportunity to play Dead Man Walking and Mozart's Marriage of Figaro at the same time. Wow. So we were alternating nights uh, where, you know, one night it was Dead Man Walking, then the next night it was Marriage of Figaro. Yeah. Um, and then I was like, oh, this whole world of music is available to me and I had no idea about it, mm -hmm. you know. And so they kind of like took off after that and I took a course with my uh, wonderful undergrad advisor, um, Gabriela Cruz about 19th and, and 20th century opera mm -hmm. and that kind of like springboarded me into this field but otherwise I wouldn't have had I think as much exposure to it my grandmother <clears throat> so I knew like conceptually that the Met existed but yeah. I, I didn't go to the Met until college um but my grandmother <clears throat> had like albums of like uh Kiri Takanawa mm -hmm. um and like uh you know, uh, Rhea Callis, like mm -hmm. she would, she would play, um, she would play opera, but like, to me, it, it felt like it was music from another country, which it is, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, to me, it felt like this opulent European, like, you know, really glamorous world that like, wasn't my world. Yeah. Which is so funny, like <laughs> thinking that in a way, that is part of, like, an American cultural zeitgeist. It just wasn't at all what I was used to. Like, it didn't feel like it was mine. Yeah. 
I think it's really interesting because I kind of feel like I'm always playing a catch-up game with opera. Like there's so much to learn and read about and think about with opera. But it is this weird thing because now I feel like I'm I'm the outsider trying to constantly get more information about this like world that wasn't accessible to me. Mm-hmm. And I think the more that I learn about opera, the more I realize I don't think that the common understanding of opera is the only understanding of opera, right? There's so many people working right now to change what opera means. I I didn't... I mean, like, I remember at that Yoss conference that we met at, um, I remember them... I remember the discussion sort of bubbling up around, like, opera and elitism and, Mm -hmm. like, how opera is such a stigmatizing and, like, polarizing term because of all the baggage it carries. But, like, like I said, I didn't grow up with that. So, like, opera didn't hold any, like cultural weight Mm -hmm. it was just this thing and I think that we forget about that a lot of times that for a lot of people it doesn't hold this like elitist power over them it's just it's like another form of theater that they can interact with up to this point we have been dancing around the topic that originally brought Allison and I together in our research identity and how it intersects with opera in America so like Francis and I started talking about uh opera and identity particularly because uh, of Gundula Kreitzer's graduate seminar, Women in the Western, Western Art Music. And, yeah. yeah. Women in Western Art Music. What was it? Women and Western Art Music. I believe no. it's and. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> um, and I think we started thinking a little bit about, like, how are women represented um, in, not just in the Western canon, but in today's understanding of what opera is. Yeah, totally. Totally. But using women sort of as an analog for all sort of like historically marginalized identities that try and participate in this field. Like I think that you and I, from the very beginning, were interested in women because of like my anecdotal experience, but also because like it would allow us to set up a rhetorical map that we could then plug other like identity experiences. But I think it's a... You know, it's, like, oversimplified in some ways, right? To just say, like, oh, we're only interested in wi- the dichotomy between women men and, and men. men. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's it's so overly reductive. And, and I think we should recognize and, like, call attention to that for mm-hmm. whenever we write the academic paper, for sure. Yeah. But it's it's interesting that such a binary actually has distinct ramifications in the way that it's re- in the way that gender is represented right in reviews well and i think that there's like a big oversimplification that is often not spoken about which is like a little burr in my tail <laughs> which is that like the um sort of dichotomous relationship between white whatever that is and like person of color whatever that is yeah you know like that dichotomy ends up being reductive to a point of like non-usefulness but and yet we still talk like we still use it Mm -hmm. right and so I think it's the same thing like we are interested in like women and men but like just highlighting that dichotomy tells you nothing about anything no yeah and I think also maybe this is a really good segue to your other interest in doing this project in you know moral psychology Mm -hmm. and its intersection with the arts field yeah you want to talk a little bit about that Yeah, I am really, I am currently in the process of writing my thesis, so we're going to do a couple of episodes on thesis topics, and um, my uh, my topic is the idea of identity as commodity, and trying to understand if when identity is, 
used to sell a piece if that actually broadens the field? Like, does that actually, you know, um, break down this glass ceiling that people have been coming up against Mm -hmm. forever? Or does it in other ways, like, structurally reinforce it? The commodification of identity and the reduction of identity down to essentialist markers has been a topic of conversation for me and Francis ever since we met and started talking about this project. We noticed that a lot of popular writing and writing for the public about women centers around how particular figures shattered glass ceilings and became the first woman to accomplish X goal. But it's precisely this shallowly exciting narrative of the first women that allows us to overlook the actual individual at stake. This is a narrative common to society, not just music, but since the narratives and the world of classical music seems particularly slow to change, it's extremely pronounced. For that seminar, because I was just like so fascinated by the fact that we can't call attention to the actual individual's work mm-hmm. and like who they are, and instead we always have to like couch it in these in these markers of like, oh, she's a woman, oh, she's you know, she's of this particular marginalized group. And mm-hmm. that is what's amazing about this. Like, I don't yeah. I don't know if that's the strongest case. No, it, I, I mean, like, I think what we're seeing, like, how it ties back to moral psychology is that, like, in the end, what it does is it gives us moral licensing to only think about the identity marker and not about the work as, like, some as part of some broader tradition. Yeah. You know? Kayasariaho, right? Mm-hmm. Like, we say, oh... She is like, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're programming a woman at the Met. Mm -hmm. Then that like gives us more license to not do it again. Yeah. You know, like, and they haven't, I mean, like we, they've got Missy and Janine coming up, but like. But it's still not on a season yet. Yeah. We're still waiting. We're still waiting. And it's not like, uh, they couldn't program thousands of other operas written by women. No. So, like, in that way, this idea of moral licensing says that, like, oh, you know, we broke the cycle yeah. for one person, and now we get to continue the cycle. I finally listened to that Malcolm Gladwell <laughs> revisionist history podcast about the, was it The Vanishing Lady? Yeah, The Lady, the lady Vanishes. Yeah. If you want to get a more in-depth description of moral licensing and the arts, check out Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, specifically season one, episode one, titled The Lady Vanishes. But I digress. Let's go back to discussing the realities of historically marginalized creators who are working in opera today. So what does it look like right now? What is the reality of um, you as a female opera composer and how easy is it for you to get programmed um, by an opera company? Well, let's talk, let's actually flip it. Let's do idealistic first. Okay, ideally. Yeah. So, and and in the most, like, uh, non-cynical reality for me, personally, is that actually I've been commissioned a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've had my operas be programmed on prototype. I've been commissioned by Chicago Lyric, like, Mm -hmm. you know, for someone, for someone who's just turned, you know, 30, like, Mm -hmm. that's pretty good. That's great. You know, I've, um, I'm working with Opera Omaha this this year, I uh, have just worked with Chautauqua. Like, I'm working with the big players, and I've, like, gotten to know and love the people who are running those programs. Like, a, they're incredible people. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for someone like me, yeah, for, I, I am getting commissioned a lot, mm-hmm. um, I would say. The more cynical side of that, I think the more realistic... Not, it's not realistic, but I guess, like, the cyn- cynical take on that is on that a, a lot of those commissions come with sort of the caveat that I'm being commissioned as a woman. Mm. Um, 
I'm also, though, I'm also probably being commissioned because I have an Ivy League degree and, I've, and I'm going to Yale. And Yale affords, especially composers, like a very specific amount of privilege. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I'm really trying to be intentionally, I'm, try, I'm intentionally thinking about and trying to figure out ways to dismantle that system because that's not, that's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of my commissions come with, Like, at some point, someone mentions that I was commissioned because I'm a woman. Mm. Sometimes it comes Mm. with that because I'm a queer woman. Mm. And, like, so my identity becomes useful in the selling of my work. Mm -hmm. And then I think on the flip side, you also have who is being programmed more frequently. So, of course, there's the canon um, Mm. composers, right? So Wagner, Puccini, Verdi, Mozart, Mozart, on and on and on. But then um, in terms of, like, the contemporary scene mm-hmm. you know we have um uh, I, I think it seems to me that most contemporary operas that do get programmed are still by men it's changing slowly yeah but like at least by a lot of the big major opera houses a lot of them are by men by men mm-hmm. a lot of them are by i would say okay so like this this is really interesting um i would say that people like beth morrison are changing the scene in that she has like her cohort of like fabulous composers and those yeah. are composers like Ellen, uh, Ellen Reed and Missy Mazzoli mm-hmm. and um, uh, David T. Little and Duyun and like she has a smattering of librettists that she works with. So she right. has like, she has Royce and... I think it's important to mention here that another factor in the lack of performances of operas by female composers might very well have to do with family planning. And whether or not a woman can or wants to take time in her 30s to start a family. We will save a larger discussion of that topic for another episode, but I do think it's important to bring that up here. The the composers are pretty young. Mm -hmm. So, like, I would say that um, Ellen, Missy, David, like, they're all in their early 40s, so they're, like, 10 years ahead of me. Young. (laughs) Right. I know. That's crazy, (laughs) That's another issue. That's another issue. But the... um, I would say that the people who are sort of regularly making their way across the main stages of these big houses are uh, a generation above that, and they are, or or older, and they're mm-hmm. generally um, like white men. Mm-hmm. So I remember in one of our previous conversations, um, you also mentioned the like obstacles that women face, and why maybe um, women opera composers don't get their work premiered until Mm -hmm. later in their life do you want to talk a little bit about that like yeah I mean there's like a thousand versions of of that story yeah you know (laughs) it's really interesting I mean like Ellen I remember at our uh at the Yoss conference this past uh spring Mm -hmm. listening to Ellen talk about still being seen as an emerging composer Mm -hmm. even though she is like in her late 30s and has won a Pulitzer emerging in quotations (laughs) Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's insane, right? Yeah. When does the distinction from young to fully-fledged happen? I, I, for a lot of people, it doesn't exist, you know? Yeah. And it's I think there's this idea that at some point you emerge and there's stability at the other end. Mm-hmm. And that privilege is just afforded to, like, a sort of a decimal percentile of the the composers that are working in America. Yeah, the whole field, I think. Yeah. Like and and just... I think that's also across the board for not just composers, but even for, like, artists. You mm-hmm. know, how many times has a singer been designated young artist? 
Right. Before, oh, yeah. Like, they... Yeah. I mean, I, I just keep thinking about... Um, I have a really good friend who was just about to make her Met debut this year. Yeah. And she is a fabulous singer. She sings with major opera houses across the country. That's incredible. And she has never made more than $30,000 a year. And that's abysmal. <laughs> that's that's insane. Awful. I mean, she, for all intents and purposes, is at the absolute top of her game. She's, like, in her, you know, mid-30s. She's done all of the major young artist programs. And she is just now maybe going to make a financial career break that would allow her to, like, actually do this as, like, a full-time professional. That's absolutely insane. It is insane. And that's the reality of our field. And that's what we need to change. (laughs) Full stop. And here is every conversation we have. (laughs) About Midnight Oil Collective. (laughs) Changing the world. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow, I need to, like, wrap my brain around that one. (laughs) Yeah. The financial realities for opera creators are incredibly unstable, which begs the question, why would anyone go into composing opera in the first place? In composition. Because do you think you were taught how to compose operas? I have a lot of friends who are, like, composers now and, like, going through conservatory programs and, you know, the stories I hear about what is it like to learn how to compose an opera are hilarious and wide-ranging. It, like, it doesn't exist. I mean, okay, first of all, in the conservatory, like, you sort of have, like, we've inherited this, like, German tradition of, like, serious music being orchestral and chamber music. Mm -hmm. And, like, an opera is this other thing. It's, like, sort of acknowledged as, like... There are some, like, good composers who wrote operas, Mm -hmm. but, like, Beethoven didn't, like, Beethoven wrote a shit opera. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I mean, like... There are parts I like. Parts. I think I'm exhausted by, like, the Fidelio conversation. Like... Parts. (laughs) It's fine. Excerpts. Yeah. As Philip Yule would say, like, you know, Beethoven is a... Extremely average <laughs> opera composer. I think, above, I think he writes above average composer, and let's leave it at that. <laughs> I think his symphonies are above average. I think his operas are like, eh, you didn't get there. C to C plus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so so with operas, they uh, they sort of exist in this like parallel universe mm-hmm. where like everyone acknowledges that it's still like it is this like recognized form of like legitimate music making. But, like, you're not taught to do it in the Mm -hmm. same way that you're taught to sort of, like, pick apart a symphony. And I think it's also really hard to get an, like, workshop an opera because it requires so many people and Mm -hmm. it requires so many collaborative forces that, you know, it's hard to get all of that together. Maybe it's it's possible in a conservatory setting because everyone is there Mm -hmm. and you have resources at your disposal. But, like, once you get out of school... Yeah. Yeah, you have to work with a company, I I found, you know, Mm -hmm. um... Or you are, you know, you have to figure out a way to raise thousands of dollars. Yeah. Um, But in the conservatory, there is, like, an opera department. Mm -hmm. And the opera department, like, intersects with the orchestral world, like, when they do grand operas. Mm -hmm. And occasionally when, like, you do something like Beethoven 9 and you need soloists. You need singers, yeah. But otherwise they don't really overlap. And I think that's sort of how a a composer's education... (laughs) It, like, happens as well. Mm-hmm. It's just, you need more collaboration. Yes. Shout out collaboration. Shout out our collaboration. <laughs> I'm really excited about our collaboration. Yeah. Because, so, Yale is is sort of weird, and everyone kind of 
acknowledges it and then doesn't really want to talk about it. Mm. About how, like, you know, the Department of Music, where the academic work happens, where the people who are getting PhDs and where the undergrads study, that is separated from the School of Music, which is where, you know, the composers, the conductors, and the performers live. Mm. They call it a professional school because, like, we are supposed to go out and be sort of, like, the practitioners of the thing. I think I'm a professional. I like to say, I, I like to believe that I work as a professional. Completely agree. I'm just saying that, like, that, like, this is the distinction that has been, like, handed down to me. And, of course, what ends up happening is, like, there are tons of resources that should be shared. Right. You know? And they're not. Well, these conversations just need to happen. And yeah. I don't think they happen all the time. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's very frustrating. We're working to fix it. Of course, this whole conversation makes us think hard about opera and its current status as a field with so many systemic issues. And this is where we fit in as artists and scholars to think about all the issues and maybe to try and imagine solutions. So as I was in undergrad and thinking a little bit more about like who goes to opera and like, why don't we really, I mean, we study it, but we study it in this historical context. And I felt like there was such a disconnect because I am an Asian American, you know, female trying to figure out what this world of classical music is like. And, you know, how do people take in stories that are just so distant or maybe even offensive at times Mm -hmm. to people who identify like I do? Mm -hmm. You know, I think I'm really interested in just sort of, I, I, or I was really interested in what is it like for the audience to take in a story that doesn't apply anymore mm-hmm. or was applicable a hundred years ago, but maybe um, has only tangential lessons or morals or, yeah. um, you know, relationships to now? Yeah, it is really interesting, right? Like, we, we're fighting a, an inherited tradition that is not aging well with globalization. Yeah. You know? But I think also, like, and then maybe on the other flip side of this, like, I have this really strong belief that there's something inherently human about opera and the way that it is performed Mm -hmm. and the possibilities of expression that exist in it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's why I'm attracted to it, too. Like... This is why I listen to it. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think that there is, like... There are these, like, unbelievable... This is what I was talking about with, like, the 2%. There's these moments where you're just like, that can't happen in any other art form. Mm -hmm. It's like... Somehow, like, when the force is combined and you have these moments, you're just like, this is the only way that this could exist. Yeah, well, I mean, think about it. This this is why I was like, oh, I need to go to graduate school to do, Mm -hmm. to study opera. is because I was like, there's so much to talk about. There's, you know, you have the music, which is what initially attracted me. Mm -hmm. But then you also have, like, the staging. You have, you know, the librettist. You have the text. You Mm -hmm. have, you know... The, the people behind the scenes working to figure out how to make this all happen so it mm-hmm. looks magical on the stage. You have the opera fan club and this culture around mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. There's so much there. And I do, it, it all coalesces in this one moment to give you something that feels transcendent. Mm-hmm. It really does. And at the same time, like, it can be this big mess, right? Yeah. That <laughs> is, like, it's, like... I don't know, like, the unpacking of, like, sort of the cultural implications is really, really messy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I'm really interested in what place opera holds now for us. Because it's different. We're not in Europe in, you know, the the turn of the 
19th century or, yeah. you know, the turn of the 20th century. We are in the United States talking about what opera can mean and can do in 2020, mm-hmm. which I think is a completely different conversation. Oh, it, it fully is. And it's a conversation. Here's the thing. I've been thinking about this recently. I think with, like, popular music mm-hmm. um, or musical theater, things that, like, sort of are firmly rooted in American culture, like, people know how to have a conversation around them. Like, we've, we, like, those are genres and fields that, like, in some ways have, like, a lineage in America, you know? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Opera is this transplant thing, <laughs> you know, that, like... We need to figure out how to have an American conversation around it. Well, and, it, it, I'm going to interrupt you there, because yeah. I think it's really interesting, because when I was doing all this work about Gershwin and thinking, and like, the very first Gershwin research I was doing, um, <laughs> you know, it was all about what is, the, there's this, like, preoccupation with what does an American opera sound like? What mm-hmm. does an American opera look like? What subject is it? You know, what story is it telling? Yeah. And I think, I don't know if we've actually settled on an answer. Like, everyone's going to tell you, oh, Porgy and Bess, go to Gershwin. Right. But I don't think that's the answer. That's not representative, necessarily, of opera in America. Well, it goes back to, to me, it just, it always, like, and this is going to get me in trouble, so, but I, <laughs> we can decide later if we're going to edit out. Um, to me, it, it goes back to this, like... this like simultaneous fetishization of like European culture which feels like totally tied up in what opera is now to America and and this like parody of like different parts of like American life Mm -hmm. so that like when someone like me and I, I, I can talk about my experience with like writing my first opera which did extraordinarily well Mm -hmm. extraordinarily well is probably my coffee kicking in this might feel a little bit like a tangent, but it will give you some context from where I'm personally coming from. My first opera is this piece called Stinney that addresses the story of George Jr. Stinney Jr., the youngest person to be legally executed in the United States. George was a black child from South Carolina who was accused of raping and murdering two white girls. Ten white men took only ten minutes to decide that he was guilty and they sentenced him to be executed in the electric chair. He was murdered in June of 1944. His case represents an incredible perversion of the justice system and discusses levels of systemic prejudice that are still quite active in our country today. This story was very interesting to me because of the work I did with restorative justice in my home state of North Carolina. I felt like I could tell the story well, humanizing all of the characters, many of whom were based off of people I had grown up with, while telling a story of hysteria and prejudice. I also had a great collaborator in my friend, mezzo-soprano Tia Price, so I went ahead and wrote the opera. The opera premiered in Baltimore two weeks after Freddie Gray was murdered, and the city erupted into protests and riots. Suddenly, our little production was being mentioned in the New York Times, on NPR, and receiving two full-page spreads in the Baltimore Sun. We packed out two shows with 800 people in each show. On paper, we were a great success. What I wasn't prepared for was the backlash we received about me being the person whose name was on the program as the creator. Some of the pushback came from people who had seen the show, and some came from people who were simply frustrated that a white woman was writing an opera centering race. That period of cancellation is still something I'm working through, personally. But honestly, I've also come to respect that conversation. All this being said is that Sydney will come up a lot in these conversations. And it ties back to our conversation at hand because it points to the very serious stakes that putting art out into the world can have on audience members and artists alike. 
That said, Allison and I both believe that good art does engender hard conversations. So the conversation around this opera is where does it fit? Where does Stinney, an American story about an American black child told by an American white woman, where does an opera like that fit into the conversation? When that comes into dialogue with what opera is supposed to be according to like elite society, right. then it blows up. It like it illuminates the giant gaping like hypocrisy that is American opera. Well, I don't think it was always hypocrisy. I think, you know, when when we're talking about early 20th century and we're talking about immigrants looking for something that is reminiscent of home, mm -hmm. you know, and they want to go to the opera house and hear, you know, something. And I, I there there was that possibility because there was something like the New York uh, City Opera, mm -hmm. you know, with lower ticket pr ticket prices and opera for the common, you know, everyday yeah. person. And I, I think, like, then it was holding a, a specific kind of, like, memory or connection to Europe. Yeah. But... Well, and you see that, right, with the people that love the Met broadcasts? Yeah. Like, you see that love, and that's the fan club that you're talking about. Like, I'm not... I'm actually not dissing the fan club or, like, the... the um What opera has meant to people who have come here. Right. I think it means something. Yeah. Like, it's meaningful. So why would we get rid of something that's meaningful? Yeah. No, I mean, I don't think we should, but we should have a very intentional conversation of what does it mean to make opera in America. And now. Yeah, and now. In 2020. <laughs> Which that is like, I guess that is sort of the conversation that we're going to, I mean, if we had to sum it up in a thesis, like, I think that is it. Like, what does it mean to make opera in America in 2020? And all of the complexities that come with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's deeply messy. It is so messy. Yeah. I, I, there's, there's so many ways in which we can try to come at this mm -hmm. conversation. And I think every episode we'll try and pick a topic and show one facet of it. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. But it's going to be... It'll be a wild ride, y'all. Because <laughs> there are no, like, good answers yet. Fasten your seatbelts. Yeah. Well, tune in next week, and we will... Uh, what are we exploring next week? Um, next week, we have Edwin and Joelle, our friends, uh, who are going to jump on this podcast and talk with us a little bit about their experiences with reviewing. Mm -hmm. um, so that'll give us a good uh, segue into maybe trying to open up what we're thinking about a little bit more. Totally. Awesome. From, uh, you know, kind of rainy Connecticut, uh, I am Frances Pollock. I am Allison Chu. And we look forward to seeing you next week. Hearing you. Hearing you next week. Talking to you. Talking to you. Talking about <laughs> opera with you. Sounds good. <laughs> Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Miss Opera Music Mister. If you like what you've heard, please feel free to follow and engage with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and would love to talk to you about your thoughts about the contemporary opera scene. Be sure to check out all the other incredible projects being incubated with Midnight Oil Collective at this time. And as always, tune in next week to hear about more discussions about the contemporary opera world featuring our favorite opera scholars and composers. You know, the people who are actually doing the thing. Lots of love, y'all. This podcast episode was produced by Connor O'Toole. 